Are you ready? Because I need you to be ready. Today's podcast on Give First is the incredible story of Marcus Bullock, someone I've gotten to know who will share his background, the rough start he had in life, his incredible perseverance, stories of those who gave first to him, and how he's now changing the world for so many more people. Don't go away. Hi, everyone. This is David Cohen, and I'm here with my amazing co-host, Brad Feld. Hey, Brad, and this is the Give First podcast. And in the startup world, Give First means simply trying to help anyone, especially entrepreneurs, without any expectation of getting anything back. So we'll be talking to mentors and founders about what Give First looks like in action and how it makes great entrepreneurship possible. We polled everyone and they said consistently that their favorite part of the show was the legal mumbo jumbo. So here it is. The following discussion is an expression of personal opinion and does not represent the opinion of Techstars or any company we discuss. Our conversations for informational purposes only, including any mention of securities or funds. This is not legal business investment or tax advice and is not intended for use by any investor. Certain of Techstars funds own or may own in the future securities in some of the companies discussed in this podcast. Got it? Hey, everybody. I'm super psyched on this episode of the Give First podcast. I have a guest that came to our staff con. We got about 350 of our own staff together for a global event. We try to do that once a year. We've missed a few because of the pandemic. It was pretty awesome. Marcus Bullock was there. He talked about his journey in front of our staff as the CEO and founder of Flickshop, and it got a standing O at StaffCon. I thought it was an amazing journey, an amazing story, and I wanted to bring him on the Give First podcast because I thought you'd enjoy the story too. So welcome, Marcus. No, thank you so much, David, man. It's good to be able to be here. Marcus, I want to get going by really just teeing you up and let you talk a bit about your own personal journey, how everything got going for you, how you ended up in a Techstars Accelerator. I think it's a powerful story. It's really inspiring. So I just want you to share your own perspective, maybe a little bit about your story arc and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, no, thank you. I mean, I, I'm grateful to now be a Techstars company and, and to work on the, the technologies that I hope will reshape the criminal justice system. I'm really passionate about this space. Uh, it all started because as a result of a decision I made when I was a 15-year-old kid, when I was in high school, my 15-year-old and 16-year-old friend we went to a shopping mall and we carjacked a man and shot at that shopping mall. I mean, we literally pulled a gun out on him, demanded that he get out of his car. We got in the driver and passenger side seat of the car, left him standing there and pulled off. That horrible decision landed me in handcuffs the very next day where my best friend and I, we were arrested and then certified as adults because there was this new wave of conversations going around the country surrounding black young men in, in neighborhoods that were committing crimes they were labeled us with this new thing called a super predator. And my judge, when my judge saw that we were the 15 and 16 year old kids that would look like some of those folks that you would hear in the news, I judge, he made it very clear that he was going to treat us like the super predators that they named us after. I got sentenced to eight years in adult maximum security prisons as a result of that car theft. And that would be the beginning of what would change my life forever. So a super predator, this was your first offense? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting, right? Like, even though it would be my first offense, there was this new thing that was like, these kids are coming into neighborhoods. They're like, they're preying on people. And if they're stealing cars or they're selling drugs or they're committing robberies, 
we must get them off of our streets. It's the way to keep our streets safer. And what it really meant was send all these kids to prison for for very long draconian sentences. Which is, of course, the fundamental problem that's talked about probably a lot more today than it was back then. But how much of that time did you serve? I got sentenced to eight years in adult maximum securities and ended up growing up inside of those cells. I would end up spending my 16th birthday and 17th birthday and 18th and 19th and 20th and 21st and 22nd and 23rd growing up inside of some of the state of Jane's worst prisons. And while I was a kid growing up in these prison cells, if I'm being honest, my first two years, I really was still a kid. I was a guy who wanted to play tag on the housing unit. You know what I mean? Like I was making all types of jokes on the rec yard, you know, probably some of them inappropriate. And then it would lead to like me getting all kinds of trouble. But it didn't matter because I was there and my mom or my lawyer or the prosecutor, someone would figure out how to communicate with the judge and let them know that I got to go back to school because I'm missing too many days of school. Like I knew I was going to get out. They were locked up. I wasn't. I just happened to be there for a week or two or maybe a couple of months. It wasn't until my second year in there, I would be walking around the prison rec yard with my best friend, Danny B, who was in his mid-50s, because in prison is one of the only places you can be like 17 years old to have a, a best friend in his mid-50s. I'm asking him, I'm like, yo, bro, how long have you been here? And he told me that he had served 31 years. And when he told me he served 31, that's when it literally hit me like a ton of bricks because I knew that I would have to serve all eight of my years. Things became different then. When I realized like I would have to serve all eight of those years, it was like, oh, man. I would get angry. I'm talking about like angry. I was angry at myself. I was angry at my sale partner. I was angry at the COs. I was angry at the warden. I was angry at my lawyer, the prosecutor, my mother, the judge, my basketball coach. Like I was angry at everyone. And there was no way for me to fight my way out of this new feeling or emotion that I was so heavy on me. And I didn't understand what depression looked like at that time. I didn't know how to define that. I didn't understand even what hopelessness looks like because as a 16, 17, 18 year old kid, like aspirationally, you still believe that you can conquer the world. And I didn't have room in my brain to grapple with, with what was happening in that time. And when my mom, she would sense this anger because I was fighting. I mean, I talk about like I was always in solitary confinement because I was in a fight or I was running these kind of hustles where two for one on honey bun specials or I'll lend you a pack of cigarettes and you got to pay me two back kind of sort of hustles. And when someone didn't pay me back, I'm ready to go to war over it. And, and it was interesting because while my judge sentenced me to the, all of this time, and I would have to be in these facilities where even my sale partner had life plus 43, everybody around me had 50, 60, 70 years. I was the only, at first I was the youngest person on the compound and I was the person with the least amount of time on the compound. And so no one understood like why you only have eight years. Like You acted as if you have a life sentence and you're carrying it like you do. And my mom was like, dude, you have to stop this. You have to figure out a way to get this under control. And she came to visit me one day in the visiting room. And although I, I wanted her to stop, I'm like, mom, don't come and visit me anymore. I'm not going to call you anymore. Don't come and visit anymore. I'm not going to write you letters. Like, let me die in here. The reality of it is that I'm probably not going to make it. Did you know that Richmond is beefing with DC, Ma? Like, my, every time I got to step out of my cell, I have to line my coat with magazines to make sure that I prevent from getting stabbed up in the prison record. Oh, jeez. Like, this is my new life, ma. You know what I mean? Like, so just let me go and let me get on with this. And my mom, she wants to emote. She wants to, like, cry. And, like, you're my only son. And I wish it was something I could do to help support you as a kid. You know, you're supposed to be worried about going to homecoming or prom. 
and you're wrestling with trying to figure out how to mitigate from being one of those body bags that you see getting wheeled down the rec yard. This is something that my mom was trying to help me with. And I'm like, this is it. Stop it. Let me go. And so she came to visit me and she's sitting across the table from me and she wants to hug on me. And I'm like, Ma, I'm not at summer camp. You can't. This is not the place to do all of this. And she's like, look, I'm going to make a promise to you today because I, I can't afford for you to lose hope in this market. You need to know that there's life on the other side of this prison cell. And I know that it looks bleak right now and you can't see it. But I'm going to make a promise right now to write you a letter or send you a picture every day from this day forward so that you can see life through my lens. And while I'm sitting across from the visiting room table from her, I'm like, Mom, you think these pictures are going to change anything in my life? Mom, when you get out of here and you walk out of this prison, you're going to let the window down and the wind's going to be blowing through your hair. You're going to listen to whatever you want to listen to on the radio and you're going to enjoy life. When I leave this visiting room, I'm going to have to go through those double doors on that side. And that, see that correctional officer over there? The very first thing that he's going to tell me to do is to strip naked and squat and cough to make sure that you didn't give me some contraband that he thinks that you're going to give me to take back to my housing unit. This is the new life I'm living, Ma. Your pictures won't change any of that. She looks at me and she's like, okay, well, I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. Lo and behold, a couple of days will go by and my mom will start sending me these photos. She will start sending me these letters. My mom was like the Instagram before Instagram. She was sending me photos of like the most interesting things. I mean, she was sending pictures of food in the earlier days, right? With like a long four-page letter like, hey, Marcus, one day you're going to enjoy a nice slice of pizza with black olives on it. And by the way, who likes black olives anyway, Marcus? And Marcus, one day you're going to enjoy sleeping on a pillow top mattress because I know you're sleeping on a mattress that doesn't fit your body. And Marcus, one day you're going to have this experience. And my mom was like, shipping all of this new content into these prisons because, you know, in prison, there's no real internet there. There's no easy emailing or texting on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or any of that kind of stuff. And so she's feeding all of this new content into not only me, but now my house, whole housing unit because they're living vicariously through my mail call. Oh, cool. So you're like sharing that with your cellmate, your other people that you know. These are like my brothers. That's cool. Yeah, they, they, they got to see this stuff too. It sounds like as your mom, man, she gave you life, but maybe in a way she saved your life too. I mean, did this motivate you and give you a vision of your own future? Or no. Is that how you think about in, it? In, in hindsight, like in 2020, that is that I see it now. In the moment, I was a kid still growing up in prison. You know what I mean? Like I, I wish I had the kind of perspective you know what I mean? But I was 17, 18, 19. And you know what I wanted? I just wanted to feel loved. I wanted to feel loved. I wanted to feel needed. I wanted to feel valued. I wanted to feel like I wasn't a massive failure. I wanted to feel like I wasn't the shame that will encapsulate my mom from never being able to talk about me with her friends at, or people at church any longer. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. You, you want to feel like this isn't going to define you forever. At the Techstars Foundation, which is our nonprofit, we work with a group that you probably know called Defy Ventures. It's gone a few different ways, but we've been working with them since really early on. And what they do is they're teaching entrepreneurial skills inside of prisons. And it's really amazing. I mean, that's exactly what we hear from folks that work with through Defy that are incarcerated, learning how to be entrepreneurs. It's sometimes they tell us, like, this is the first time in a long time or maybe forever someone's actually believed in me, right? And said, you can do it and supported me and just cared. And they say, this is something that is changing me. It's like a new experience for them. Absolutely. I mean, when you're in a rec yard, the reality of it is, is that there's no shortage of brilliance there. It's similar to living on a college campus without all of the academia. 
right? But what happens is because of the hopelessness that lives there, you don't have the progressive conversations that will accelerate any of the learning that you're taking upon yourself, any of the classes on the books that you're like diving into to try to figure out how to navigate this thing that you're going to want to leverage when you get on the other side of those gates. It isn't being fed similarly how it would be when someone on the outside, especially that's running businesses or organizations, that are being successful on the outside, you come in and validate me now. Right. All of what I've been reading or talking about on the rec yard to my friends saying that we should do this thing when we get home or I want to do this thing when I go home. I want to start this thing when I go home. Organizations like the five ventures, they come in and they co-sign it. Right. It's not like the people that's living in the sales are looking for a savior. What they're looking for is someone to hit the light switch for them and expose them to what opportunities are and then to give them some social validation. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them, they're literally telling you, like, I just want to start a food truck when I get out of this place. And a mentor from Defy or someone is telling them, you can do it and I'll help, right? And that just changes everything for them. So yeah, yeah. So, so at this point, it's like you, you've been in prison for a third of your life. It's like your entire adult life so far. Yeah. And, and, and people are saying, yeah, this is, you only have eight years, but to you, that's, you know, that's a third of your life. So to put that in perspective, it's, it's now almost like the only life you really can remember. So what happens when you served your time and you get released? What led you to what you're doing today? I mean, so when I got home from prison, although I knew I wanted to start some kind of business, I had been an entrepreneur since I was a kid. And I don't know if I would have ever labeled myself as an entrepreneur as a, you know, 12 year old kid selling blow pops and annihilators on my school bus stop, or even when I was start, start selling weed or crack around my neighborhood, or when I started selling honey buns, sodas and cigarettes when I was in prison. I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur, but I, what I did know is that this was the way that I could control how much money I made, right? I could do that. I could control how much money I made and I could deliver smiles. I could make people happy. I could make sure that I was able to add value to someone's life while also figuring out a way to drive a Benz. It was always about trying to figure out how to way to drive a Benz, David. Like that was always the goal. And so when I came home, it was like, all right, the first step to doing that, right, to getting to having that kind of success again, the same success I would have in D-Building when everyone would know me as the guy who had all of the honey buns in the unit was to be able to find a job. Finding a job was probably one of the hardest things that I didn't anticipate when I came home because I knew that I could, I had the skill sets to be able to quickly gain some success no matter where I would apply. These were all entry-level positions I was applying for, but I still had to check that box on a job application that asks, have you been convicted of a felony? After 41 job applications, with the foolish optimism of the next one being the one, finally on the 42nd application, they asked me, have you been convicted of a felony, comma, within the last seven years? Now, I had just served an eight-year prison sentence, so I was able to honestly say, no, I have not been convicted of a felony within the last seven years. And there was a job at a paint store that would give me my first opportunity. I would see some interesting people come in and out of the paint store and would be so excited about mixing paint every day. It was like the zenith of my life, simply because I had the opportunity now to just engage with people, just to be able to sell a product that people came into the store and wanted to purchase and I could add value. People would have conversations with me and I was the one that was so friendly to everyone who would come into the paint store. I mean, you're talking about I hadn't had a real conversation with someone of the opposite sex for almost a decade, David. So when they would come into the page, they're like, hey, I want to buy some blue Arctic ice. I'm like, well, well, tell me what you're painting with that. You know what I mean? Like, are you going to paint your kitchen? Are you going to really? Are you going to cook in your kitchen? 
What do you typically cook? What do you make with your fettuccine Alfredo? Do you drink wine with that? Someone was telling me about a wine selection that they had. Have you ever heard of this before? Right? And people were like, yo, you're way too excited to be a hit seller pay. And so people were standing in my lines because they knew that I was the happy-go-lucky guy who would introduce them to their new favorite color. But the interesting thing was that the painters that would come into the paint store, the contractors, they would be complaining about this new pending recession that folks were talking about surrounding the housing boom or crisis that was going to happen. I had no idea what they were talking about. But what I did know was that some of those happy-go-lucky customers that would come in and be excited about working with me would typically ask me, Marcus, how much do you charge to paint kitchens? Now, my job is definitely not to be painting anybody's kitchen. My job is to mix this paint for you and sell it to you, Ms. Johnson, so that you can paint your own kitchen. I saw an interesting opportunity there. A light bulb went off and I became the conduit between those contractors and those Ms. Johnsons who needed to get their kitchens painted. That was my first real entrepreneurial opportunity outside here in the community that would begin to create some success for me. So you're kind of creating a marketplace between painters and these customers that you're meeting that need stuff painted. And so now you, you got your, you know, sort of entrepreneurial stuff going on and you're not just uh, selling paint in a paint shop with your job. You're also doing some entrepreneurial stuff on the side. Yeah. Shout out to Sherwin Williams because Sherwin Williams was the one that gave me that job. Right. But they would be the ones they would be like, dude, why in the world are your paint sales so high? What they didn't know was that every painter in D.C. wanted to come to my paint store and stand in line and wait for me because they knew that it was a possibility of some painting work that would come as a result of it. My sales is going crazy. Like, dude, you're selling more paint than anyone in the entire company. We're going to give you a trio. You don't even remember trios, David. We give you a trio, an Amex car, and a company car, and put you out the streets and give you a sales rep gig. Now I got an $80,000 a year gig coming straight out of prison. And I'm like, oh, this is dope. Because now not only am I able to be out in the community, but now I could sell more paint for Sherwin Williams. But I could also ask some of those vendors, hey, while I'm specking your paint, do you have someone to paint this project for you? Oh, you don't know anyone yet? Boy, do I have a company for you. And it was interesting because I would be able to grow this new painting business in a way that would allow me to be able to stop working at Sharon Williams. I would eventually grow that into a nice-sized construction company, and it would give me access to a life that I, I could only dream of. <laughs> Amazing. Did you go to then recruit other paint salespeople who you're friendly with to sort of send leads through this new business you were creating? You know, I wasn't recruiting out of the store, but what was interesting was I would end up now having enough resources to bid on projects that would give me access to people, right? And folks would come apply for jobs with me simply because I was the new guy who would win these new bids. It was one project in particular that would change my life. It's always been someone who would gamble or take a risk on me in an interesting way that won big as a result of it, right? And it's interesting, David, because most people slam their doors in my face. I'm typically the guy that gets the door slammed in my face, but my foolish optimism allows me to continue to keep pushing forward. This one company that was working on a project at BWI Airport was up for a renewal on a contract. And they were like, hey, Marcus, if you can get your minority business certification, we'll bring you in as our sub on this project. It was a three-year contract with a two-year option on it. I was able to win that contract and we murdered it. I mean, we made so much money for that company that they were like, dude, you got to paint all, you got to like be our preferred contractor from now on. We became the contractor for Georgetown University and National Press Club and Howard University. And people will come into my office now and now I was no longer the job seeker. Now I'm the job giver. And people sit across from the table from me like, Marcus, I want to let you know before I apply for this job, you know, while we're in an interview, I have a felony conviction. 
And I'm like, word, dude, I got three of them. How many you got? Like, for real? Like, oh, snap. Like, you did what? Oh, you knew you were going to prison for that one, man. Look, let me tell you that. I was just as stupid. Let me tell you what I did, right? And it was interesting because this new dynamic would allow me to hire people that had felony convictions. I remember it was the 18th employee. I would look back and see that 16 of the people on our team had felony convictions just like me, which was phenomenal because now they're working for a company making sustainable wages, right? It's not just, you know, minimum wage work, sustainable employment that gave them the pride of working with the team where they can all, we can all joke about commissary or count time and no one else would get our crazy humor, but we had something that was ours and, and we were making an incredible dent in the world. And, and I was really proud of that. Regular listeners know I, I can't miss an opportunity to jump in and talk Give First here because the story is, is totally full of Give First. And it's just awesome on, on so many dimensions. There's give first everywhere. Somebody gave you a chance, right, after like tons of job applications and eventually someone said, I'm going to give first and I'm going to give this person opportunity, whether that was accidental or on purpose or whatever. But then like more importantly, like you turned that around and, and gave that back to so many others that were in similar situations. So, you know, I think there's, there's often a lot of fear. It's so hard to get a job if you're coming out of this situation. And you gave, I don't know, 16, 18 people that opportunity and your company hired them and they got out there and hopefully did a good job. I, I mean, I'm just going to ask, was it that they were out there, you know, doing new crimes and giving you all kinds of problems or were they just so thankful that you gave them a shot just to have the opportunity to kind of earn an office living and have a community of people they could talk to and be part of something? Was it mostly the former where they were troublemakers or, or more the latter where they were just, you know, sort of psyched to have an opportunity? It was all the latter. In fact, there were a few of the men and one of the ladies on our team that went off and started other construction businesses. And then they became our 1099 subcontractors when we had larger projects, right? These were folks who were so excited. They were waking up in the middle of the afternoon to go paint a BWI airport because you had to paint at nighttime because we had to wait till the airport closed out, right? And, and they would wake up in the middle of the afternoon, go to the airport, they would paint all night long, get up, go to one of our residential projects, go work there, and they would post about it. Right. It was on their like on their timelines talking about how incredibly excited they were about going to work at this company. That was something that was dope for me. But what I learned for along the journey is that as we continue to take other projects, they would tell their friends and they're like, hey, look, Marcus, you know, I know you're getting into the hardware flooring business. Would you be comfortable with me introducing you to one of my other friends who or one of my cousins who would I'm like, yo, bring him into the office. Definitely. It was interesting because that would snowball into something. In fact, when I would start having this success out of the construction business, which would give me opportunities that I would never dreamt about, David, right? I could travel around the world. My mom was able to retire from the government um, finally, and, and now she could drive a really nice car in post-retirement. My sister could move out of, a, out of a bad neighborhood. Like, this was an incredible experience for my entire family now, right? My friends who I grew up with in prison, they call at home and like, bro, you are out there living your best life. Like, how are you not sharing this with me? Like, dude, you need to send me pictures. Do you remember when your mother used to send you pictures and write you letters? And I'm like, I promise, as soon as I get back from the Bahamas, look, I promise, look, when you go to the Bahamas, get these jet skis, when you're in the middle of the water, you can see the fish. Did you notice? You can see the fish from the water. Like, it was incredible. And I'm, you're talking to a guy who never left the Washington, D.C. area, right? And the, most of my friends, who the only times they would leave the area is when they would be on a prison bus, David, 
Right. And so now I'm promising them, like, I want you to live vicariously through me now. Like, I want you to see these moments and share them with me because I want you to know when you get out of prison, bro, you're going to have the same success. I promise you. I promise you. And Monday we're turning in Tuesday. Tuesday are turning in two weeks. Two weeks are turning in three months. And I still haven't written one letter. And I hadn't printed, printed one picture. I don't know how my mother did it. Right. But now I, that kind of discipline was like, <laughs> Shout out to the moms. Like, it's nothing like a, like a mother's love. I mean, it's something incredible. And when I didn't see a solution, and mind you, there's an app to help me get my coffee quicker. I knew that there was a way, it had to have been a way for me to send pigeons to my friends who were in prison. And when we didn't find one, I took a bunch of the cash out of my construction business and I Googled how to build a mobile app. A few weeks later, we would land on working with a team that would help us create what would later become FlickShop. So, so you had this construction business that was doing well and it was growing and there was lots of good stuff there and it created new economic freedom for you and, and lots of other people too that you hired and you still had this other idea in the back of your mind like, hey, I can give back. I can help other people that are you know still in prison. I need to do this. I, I need an app or a tool that will help me do this. So the motivation of that, was that just like pure altruism or did you think of that as like a business at that time? I really didn't, to be honest. I mean, I, we were doing okay with the construction. I mean, my life, we had grown this thing to now. It's like a design build firm, right? Like we're building $85,000 kitchens, right? Like I was the guy who you would call when you want the sexiest cherry Brazilian volcanic granite across your deep steel blue cabinets, right? Like we were building these systems, right? I want to build you your in-wall saltwater fish tank with a recessed motorized, ch- you know, like that was what we were building, right? Nothing about what we would do or say I would have built a tech company and or build something that would grow into a venture back company that we want to reduce recidivism. That was something that came much later. To be honest, Dave, I just want to send pictures to my friends. That's all. And you need an app to do it. So you said, how do I build an app to do that? And here's the thing, right? I needed an app to do it, but I also needed an app that could allow me to do it quickly and on the go. Like that was the thing. And it had to reach across different channels. Like all of these different fragmented technologies around state systems versus federal facilities versus juvenile versus ICE detention. All of them were fragmented and they cost a grip to the families. How could we do something that was easy? that was affordable, and it didn't matter where my loved one was, I could send it to them because I had friends in different facilities. It was a challenge in the beginning because I, I had no idea what I was doing, um, but grateful for what we've, we've created since then. Yeah, so you can't just use like Instagram or something because if you're in prison, you can't get that. So you need a thing that's easy to use in the real world for whoever send the pictures and then something that can actually be used for somebody that is in prison, I guess. So you created that and and how did you grow it? Did other people start using it? Like how did it start to catch on? So I'm sending pictures to my friends, I'm sending these postcards and no one gets mail in prison, right? So it would start growing organically. Mind you, I'm still running this construction business. That's the where I, you know, I generate my income. And it would start permeating across one facility. And then I would send them to other prisons. And then a couple of my friends who knew someone was locked up, they were like, yo, didn't you say you were working on the app that I could send pictures to them. I'm like, yeah, you should download it. I give it away for free. And then folks were like, well, I can't use it because it's only on iPhone. And I'm like, oh, oh I got to develop something for, for Android too? Oh, now I got to take it. I got to do a few more basements, a few kitchens, get a little bit more bread, do this whole wire framing process for this other platform, right? And I would continue to grow this thing over time. 
it wouldn't be until folks were starting to like send them in droves into other states where we hadn't even reached out to anyone there. It would, folks were sending flick shops to people in California and then Arizona and then in Florida. And we were like, wait a minute, we're on to something. And so I started spending more time in it. When I started to see it grow, we were like, all right, well, we got to do something about this because now I have these big, huge digital press printers inside of my construction company's offices. I got these big cutting machines to be able to cut down these massive sheets of paper into these postcards. I got post machines. We got to grow this thing. And I need to hire people to help me to do this, right? And so I ended up acquiring another janitorial firm from a friend who I met in prison. He had started a janitorial firm in Southern Maryland. They had a bunch of FedEx Kinko contracts. It was really an aqua hire. I needed their team and I needed him to help run some more of the stuff while I was growing Flick Shop. He became my VP of my construction business. And then when we applied for Techstars in 2018, it would give us enough of the cash and programming that will allow me to learn how to build this new tech company. Because right, we I, I didn't have experience in building a tech company. It was all these new terms and acronyms and stuff I had never heard of. I was able to have uh, an exit out of that company back in 2018 when we got into Techstars. He got promoted up to the CEO of that company. It allowed me also to have enough cash to be able to, you know, continue to take care of my family while we'll go through the Techstars program. And, you know, 170,000 users later, I'm excited to continue to keep connecting families around the country. What an amazing story. And you raised some capital for that business now for FlickShop. And how did you even come across Techstars? Like, where did you even hear about that opportunity? We learned about Techstars through a biz dev guy from Cooley, the Cooley Law Firm. Cooley Law Firm had some office hours scheduled at one of the co-working spaces here in D.C. called Impact Hub. And the lawyer that was supposed to be there was sick. So the biz dev guy from Cooley was like, hey, look, no one signed up for this except for one person. Some guy named Marcus from this app that connects people in prison. I'll go ahead and fill in for you um, for the office hours. I go in. We're talking about the company. He's like, you know, what do you need a lawyer for? I'm like, for everything. I have no idea what I'm doing. And so um, he's like, you know, have you ever thought about, you know, raising capital for this? I'm like, raising capital? What do you mean? What does that term mean, raising capital? <laughs> he's like, you know, who, is this venture back? I'm like, venture. What's that term you just used again? And mind you, I'm Googling in the meeting, right? He's telling me, I'm like, no, no. He's like, well, you know, you should think about applying for a business accelerator. All of the context clues, I kind of sort of accelerate. I think I know what this means. Um <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> Any chance this guy's name was Ben Hadley? No, so it wasn't Ben Hadley. I met Ben. Ben is awesome. But this guy was Carl Grant. Okay, awesome. Yeah, that's that's great. I, I wanted to get that name because I want to make sure they, they hear this too because they're part of that Give First story, right? It's it's so cool. They're just there showing up, trying to help, and they have this huge impact, right, on, on you and the company. And I run into this all the time, right? I'm, I'm in certain context situations, communities. I'm talking about pre-money valuation, post-money valuation, and I can see look on people's faces like, I don't, I don't understand that. And I'm like, okay, let's slow down. Let's talk about what that means. And I think that's important to do, right? Because not everybody has the same like background and experience and exposure to this stuff. I didn't know what UX UI meant, let alone post-money valuation or total addressable market. Like all of these would do new terms to me. So today, how many users did you say FlickShop has now? 170,000 registered on the platform. We shipped over 700,000 postcards using the platform. And now some of our biggest customers are Boeing, Delta Airlines, Bank of America, Slack. And we're excited to not only connect our families that use our platform, but we've combined data science and our family engagement to be able to figure out ways to allow for employers to be able to find their next rounds of talent that are coming out of these sales. 
Waste management doesn't care if you have a felony conviction, if you want to be a sanitation engineer and come right out of prison making 75K. And we want to connect you to those jobs well before you come out of prison. Our data allows us to be able to do that in a very interesting way. And we're excited about continuing to, to learn how to grow FlickShop in, in this new space. Marcus, I mean, you, you are having an enormous impact on the world, man. I mean, this is such an inspiring story. You've taken everything that went wrong and, and making it right. And it's like your mom gave you this this gift, right, of these images. You turn that around and you're changing so many lives on the other end and creating so many opportunities for so many people because I think our prison systems are full of entrepreneurs, right? It's just a different type of entrepreneurship that needs to be harnessed and turned into better things in a lot of cases, right? And it's just amazing to see how one person with a positive attitude can persevere, take advantage of opportunities they get, change the lives of so many other people. So just super, super proud to be associated with you in this way through Techstars. No, thank you so much. I mean, I talk about all the time how when Carl introduced me to Natty and Natty introduced me to Ryan Cooter, who runs Techstars Anywhere, having those groups of people combined with John Legend, like John Legend was our first non-dilutive investor, right? He was the one that was like, hey, look, we got to figure out a way to advance these kinds of conversations for entrepreneurs that are coming out of these marginalized communities. And then Techstars came right behind them like, you know, we want to double down on this. We got to figure out a way to ensure that you have access, Marcus, because one of the things that most people that come from out of communities like mine, we lack is social capital and access. And trying to provide it with the right opportunity, we could build something amazing. I'm super proud to be a Techstars company and, and to hopefully open up uh, pathways for so many others that are going to come behind me. That's the thing, because it's so cool that you're having the success, you're employing people. That That's awesome, right? But I, I think the bigger thing is that you're impacting so many more people and inspiring them and giving them opportunities. And that's what I love about Techstars. And if, if people ask me, what are you most proud of about Techstars? It's not the financial success. It's not the companies that you can name. It's really seeing generation of entrepreneurs that live this give first mantra, right? That have experienced it, given it back to each other now for 15 years and growing. So it's like to have you be a part of it. Thanks for telling us your story today. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you guys for believing in me. This was fun. Thanks a lot for listening to the show today. We'd love to hear your feedback, ideas, or who you'd like to hear next on Give First. And please leave a rating and review, ideally a good one, and reach out anytime to podcasts at techstars.com or on Twitter, I'm at David Cohen. See you next time. Don't forget, Give First.